Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, good morning. As you're aware, you've spent the past, I guess, a month and a half in Galatians and I think I was singing too much. I, my voice is uh, terrible now. <coughs> mm. All right. Well, as you're aware, we spent the past uh, month and a half in Galatians. And what we were doing is emphasizing the priority of the gospel, among other things. And last week, Pastor Kevin talked about justification by faith or by grace through faith. And considering the subject matter in general, where we've been at in particular in this book... I thought it would be helpful to do a bit of a, a bit of an, an elaboration on Galatians one six and talk about some of the uh, different gospels that are put forward for us to consider uh, at this point in history. And so, some of those uh, gospels that we put forward that Paul tells us are not gospels in fact, uh, but that are presented to us as counterfeits for the good news. Uh, some of those things we uh, realize very clearly that are unique to this point in history, uh, but then there are uh, there are common streams in uh, some of these things that have been not at all unique to human experience, but have been characteristic of human experience from the very beginning. And so man has always tried to find a way to fix the problems that he sees around him. Uh, some of those uh, means that he uses to accomplish that purpose are are very similar. Uh, they, there's uh, nothing new under the sun, as some have said, but uh, just endless repack- repackaging packaging, uh, packaging of the same idea. And so as we interact with uh, the good news, sometimes it is helpful to spend some time talking about uh, false gospels or false ideas or counterfeits. Uh, it's been said that uh, you... If you spend enough time on the you know, the true thing, that you'll be able to sp- uh, spot a counterfeit fairly easily. But sometimes uh, it is helpful to think through what are the techniques that people use to counterfeit. And so uh, today, what we'll be doing is we'll spend some time talking about the um, these counterfeits, and then we'll do that in the first half today. And then the second t- half of our time today, we're going to spend. Uh, gaining clarity as to the nature of the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only message of salvation that God has provided for us. And so what we'll do is we'll spend some time elaborating on this phrase in Galatians 1, uh, 6, and then we'll spend the second half of, uh, of our time here in 1 Corinthians 15. So why don't I go ahead and read these two passages, and then we'll open up with a word of prayer. Galatians 1, 6 through 7. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And then 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 8, uh, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to think about your scriptures. Lord, to think about the good news that you uh, of what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be gospel people who are clear about what you've done for us, Lord, and are able to uh, reject many of the false alternatives to that good news that we see around us, Lord. We, we thank you once again for uh, your scriptures and your sacrificial death on the cross. We pray that you'd protect us from error today and that we would uh, think your thoughts after you. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, gospel is one of those words that we use so often that I think it can become almost cliche and um, it's a Christian word and so we're used to hearing it and when we hear people use that word I think sometimes we can assume that maybe we understand what they're saying or that we're all saying the same thing uh, because we're saying the same words but as is true in many different circumstances and situations you ought not to assume that you know what people say by the words that you're, words that they're using I think I've used this example before. I'll go ahead and use it again because I, I like it. But uh, maybe I'm not very creative. Uh, but when we, when um, when Gavin was a little younger, he really liked ceiling fans, and so he would um, want you to pick them up and hold them up to the ceiling fan so he could pull on pull on the ceiling fan strings. And so at one point, he was walking up to me, and he's. He's kind of whining and fussing about wanting to be held up there so he can pull on the fan strings. And 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 so I, I wanted to teach him to be polite. And so, you know, you don't just whine about something that you want. You, you need to be polite and say please. And so I said, well, say please. And so he says please. And so I pick him up, and he's really, really happy, and he's pulling on the fan strings. And we did that for as long as uh, it took for my arms to get tired. And then I uh, went ahead and put him down. And so... Um, you know, from that point on, he, as he walked into the room, he would point up to the fan and he would say, please. And so here I am. I'm thinking that I, I'm a wonderful parent who has taught my kid to be polite. Uh, but, and so as I pick him up and uh, I'm holding him up to the fan, he's pointing at the fan strings and he's saying, please, please. And then it dawned on me what had happened. I didn't teach him to be polite. I taught him the name of the fan strings. And so... Uh, <laughs> So uh, the point of that, though, is just to say that oftentimes when we hear words, we, uh, we, we hear a word, we assume that um, we know what people are meaning by that word, but it could be that they mean something completely different than what, uh, what we mean by the word. And so we're all using the same words. We're thinking we're using the same language. We think that we're communicating clearly. But in fact, uh, like ships in the night, we just passed each other uh, unknowingly. And, and so... Uh, it's important then that as we're interacting with other people, we ask them what they mean by the gospel. And so if you were to make a habit of doing this, ask people what they mean when they say the word gospel, I imagine you hear a variety of things. Uh, for instance, you may hear this response, the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's clearly how you respond to the gospel, but is that the gospel? Uh, you, might, you may ask someone else, you know, what, what is the gospel? And they may say, well, the first commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. So those are 
clearly two uh, commands that are very important in the scriptures, and in some ways they do sum up the whole of uh, man's responsibility, one, that you love God, and then uh, two, that you love your neighbor as yourself, and certainly there is some priority in those two commands so that you your love for God is more uh, foundational than your love for neighbor, and so it's important that we get those things right, and as I'm saying, those statements are certainly true, but are they the gospel? Are they an accurate summary of the gospel? Well, you, you may ask someone else, what is the gospel, and then they may respond by saying, well, the gospel is trying to help someone go to heaven. Uh, and also try to help them here and now. Well, once again, that's a that's an admirable sentiment. Uh, it's certainly a sentiment that we'd want to applaud. We want to encourage the sort of interaction that people may have in the world, where they're concerned with uh, man's eternal destiny and also concerned with um, man's um, the consequences of uh, living in a fallen world here and now. Once again, that's great and that's wonderful. But is that the gospel? Are any of these things the gospel? And so if we're going to speak clearly about the gospel, the point is that we need to remember, first of all, uh, what the gospel is. And, and in seeking to answer that question, what is the gospel, it's important to remember that the gospel is primarily a message of good news. That's what the word means. That's what the word Evangelion uh, means it means good news, and so as we're thinking about the gospel, we need to be thinking primarily in terms of news. And so, none of those statements that I just gave you were statements about news. Uh, they were, in one way or the other, uh, ways we might respond to the gospel or um, important pr- uh, things that we ought to do in the world in some way or another. But they're not primarily news. And so, uh, secondly, we also ought to remember that. Uh, as you read through the New Testament, the New Testament begins with four Gospels. And those four Gospels are stories that are centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so foundationally, when we're talking about the Gospel, we, we ought to remember that first we're talking about news. We're talking about news which is good, a message. But then it's a message first and foremost of what Jesus Christ has done in history. And so uh, we're, we're speaking of not just uh, generic good news, but good news of what Jesus has done. And so often as you read the Bible, you see uh, what immediately follows the gospel is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we're speaking about good news, we need to remember that we're speaking about the good news of a person. And like all good news, the good news of what Jesus has done in history is appreciated in pro- only in proportion to our understanding of the gravity of the bad news to which the good news responds. So typically in life, good news is only good news if it follows bad news. Isn't that the case? So uh, if, uh, well, further, I mean, the worse the news is, the greater the happiness that we receive when we hear uh, the good news because this good news is responding to some sort of bad news. It's canceling out some sort of bad news. So if you you are interacting with the sort of person who has grown up in luxury and privilege their whole entire life, well, their whole life has been a message of good news, hasn't it? And so it's often the case that you uh, are interacting with people whose whole lives have been a series of uh, never-ending good news that they have a way of not appreciating good news when they see it. But then uh, to the person who's spent the past 10 days wandering the desert looking for water, the good news of water, of a discovery of water, will be received with much more thanksgiving than the sort of person who has faucets which give clean water all the time, right? 
Now, um, as we're thinking about the subject of good news, it is therefore important to spend some time talking about the bad news to which the good news responds. And so, in doing so, the only way to really begin a discussion of the good news is to describe the situation to which the good news addresses. And the situation that the good news addresses is this situation of the condemnation of man. If you open your Bible to Genesis two sixteen through 17, what you see is you see that the Lord God has made man in his own image, and he commands the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Our Bibles begin with the account of God's creation of the world. God made man in his own image, and he made him upright. Uh, throughout the beginning of the Bible, the opening pages of Scripture, we see that God made man and he's given him many blessings. So first and foremost, he gives him access to God. We see that the man and the woman have uh, access to God that is free and flowing. There's communication that goes back and forth. They, uh, the man and the woman are described as walking and talking with God in the cool of the day. And immediately after their sin, what we see is man is cast out of Eden out of the presence of the Lord. And so there's this fundamental separation that uh, is introduced after, but the original state of man is that he has access to God. He has perfect human relationships. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having the sort of interactions with your family and your friends, your co-workers that are completely free and devoid of all sin and all struggle, all misunderstanding, all difficulties? Uh, you instantaneously know exactly what a person is trying to communicate to you. You don't have uh, this um, problem of uh, these communication problems. You don't have these financial problems. You don't have uh, relational problems. You don't have fights. You don't have arguments. You always instantaneously think the best about other people. You ascribe the best possible motives to them. Uh, you give them the benefit of the doubt. And all your interactions with them are completely selfless. Uh, and completely focused on their benefit, not your own. So you have this access to God, uh, the perfect human relationships. You have perfect relationships to the creation. You don't have animals who are seeking to attack you and kill you and uh, poison you or eat you. Uh, all of your relationship with the animals are, are uh, intact. And that may be something that we don't even think about living in this kind of society. I don't know that uh, if you were to... Uh, think about one of the advantages of being in the Garden of Eden is that you have perfect interactions with uh, the animals. But I can assure you that if you go from living to Eden and then also uh, you go from that to having animals who are seeking to kill you and destroy you, you instantaneously understand the value of what I'm talking about here. Uh, but So you have perfect relationships with the animals and then you have perfect relationships with the earth. Uh, there's no such thing as a sunburn, right, in Eden. I mean, it's, it's those kind of things that you... you um, we take for granted. Uh, you, the temperature is never too hot or too cold. Uh, you're always comfortable. Um, there's no thorns in the ground. There's no thistles. You're not searching for water and everything else. And so amidst this situation, this blessed situation I've described, God gives man another blessing. And we see that blessing in the form of a command in Genesis two sixteen through seven seventeen. God commanded the man, saying, You shall uh, eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, as a result of our fallenness, we're tempted to think of God's uh, commands as roadblocks, which uh, bar the way to the good. But any objective observer would tell you that uh, this command that God gives the man and the woman is the best possible thing he could give them. Uh, He's given them instructions which will keep them, uh, if they choose to obey, in this blessed state. Um, Now, as a result of our fallenness, as I'm saying, we're tempted to distress commands that God has given us. But this really is another form of blessing which God uh, has given and, and you understand this because before the fall, the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. And after the couple sought to hid themselves, they're also, after the fall, they're embarrassed. They're, they're uh, feeling guilt and shame as a result of their transgression. Before the fall, Adam and Eve have never experienced the sting of death. After the fall, they're slowly dying themselves. They have to witness... Well, one of their sons killing another one of their sons. They, they dealt with the reality of the consequences of this command in a very personal way. Uh, in a very personal way, they, they came to understand this knowledge of good and evil, that evil really is a bad thing, both experientially and in terms of just the damage that it causes of, in, in our relationships with God and others. So as we interact with some of the various examples of the good news that are presented to us, it's important to think about how they relate to this fundamental human condition. You really can't understand the world that we live in apart from this understanding of the reason for sin entering into the world. And so as we interact with these different gospels that are presented to us, I want you to try to pay attention to the ways in which they modify that basic situation I've described to you just now. Think about, as we talk about these different uh, Gospels that are presented, think about what they're emphasizing, what they're ignoring, uh, what their solution is to the fundamental problem that I just described. And so the first different Gospel that we're going to interact with is this Gospel of human progress or the good news of human progress. Now, um, as you think about this good news of human progress, I doubt that anyone would phrase uh, the good news of human progress in exactly the way that I just described it. There's no one out there who is going to seek to win you uh, to the good news of human progress. They're not going to tell you that's what they're trying to do, but this is the foundational worldview of every unbeliever that we have. And so everyone looks around the world, and they can look around the world, and they see that there's something wrong with the world, there's there's problems in the world. It takes a really um, unaware sort of person to look around and think that everything is perfect and right. Uh, uh, maybe there's some sort of people out there who are uh, perpetual optimists who can't see uh, the plain reality of sinfulness in the world. But I think that uh, they're few and far between. Even if you press them, they'll re- they'll they'll be quick to admit that, yes, there are some bad things out there. Uh, but the good news of human progress is uh, is responding to this sort of situation. So obviously there's a variety of injustices and inequalities in the world, and many of these injustices and inequalities are perpetrated by people. Uh, but the good news is that people are basically good at their root, um, you know, we do sometimes do barbarous things, but the, we do barbarous things as a result of a lack of education or the fact that, 
you know, we're placed in difficult um, situations. Uh, but ultimately, science and education will fix the fundamental problems of life, will advance beyond the dark days of tribal violence and enter into a new day of peace and safety. And so that's the message of human progress. Uh, yes, things are bad, uh, but education's the answer. Science is the answer. Ed, uh, science and education, we're going to... F- uh, combined with the inherent goodness of man, will fix these problems. If we just educate people, they will no longer uh, try to eat other people, right? And so um, you don't see cannibalism happening in advanced societies very often, do you? Well, what's the solution? The solution is education. Uh, the solution is uh, just giving people the things that they need. And so science, because of the advancements we have in science, we're able to feed more people. And so they're not forced to uh, act in these uh, monstrous ways. And so uh, the good news of human progress is a message of optimism. Now, um, as you think about that message that I've just explained, what does it do? It minimizes the extent of uh, the sin problem that's in our own hearts and in, in the world that we interact with. And it put, it puts forward a human solution to the problem, right? So as you think about the good news that we're going to be speaking of uh, later on in the in the message, you'll see that the good news that we believe in, that Christians believe in, is not the good news of a human solution, uh, uh, but then the good news of the God-man coming and become human and doing for us what we cannot do. So uh, this good news is the good news of um, human achievement, that humans through their ingenuity and technological savvy will fix all the basic problems of the world. And what we see is that this is really an illusion of good news. If you just pay attention, if you just look around the world, you'll realize that um, even even though we have advanced in technology and even though we've advanced in our ability to help others with science, uh, there's still... There's still evil in the world that we can't fix through human means. And and so as you think about this good news, you realize that this good news is really more attractive in technologically advanced societies. And it's it's only attractive, uh, generally speaking, during periods of relative peace and safety. And so before, um, I think at the end of the... uh, 19th century and the earliest 20 early 20th century just to let me uh, just to give you an analogy of what I'm talking about uh, this gospel of human progress was characteristic of a philosophical movement known as modernism now uh, inherent to modernism was an optimistic hu- uh, view of humanity and you can really uh, you, you know there's plenty of movies that are modernistic uh, in that you'll see in these movies this strong expectation of the hope of what science is going to uh, be able to achieve one day and one day we're going to be uh, ab- we're going to progress much uh, further than what we are now and there's all this hope and expectation placed on science so that's all characteristic of modernism uh, but you know, the World War One and World War Two had a way of killing the optimism there. And so if you just think about uh, the world from a historical perspective, uh, really as a society, especially Western societies, we thought we were getting better and better and better. And then all of a sudden we have Hitler and Pol Pot and all these horrible uh, massacres, uh, uh, world wars and conflicts where we're losing millions and millions of people. Uh, science wasn't the answer, was it? Education wasn't the answer. There's still something wrong with us, fundamentally deep inside of us, that we can't fix through human means. Science didn't fix everything. For one thing, it, what, science isn't self-interpreting. Uh, we, it doesn't just. We, you have to interpret science. You don't just. It doesn't just interpret the world for us. Similarly, education wasn't 
the answer. Uh, we can't even agree on what education we should be training people in. And so what you have is a variety of uh, conflicting theories of education that uh, result in a societal mess. Despite the many good technological advances we've made, we can't fix the fundamental sin problem. Uh, the good news of human progress rings hollow. Not only does it not provide the answers to our problems here and now, but it blinds us to the reality that await us after death. And you see that if you just look around the world. Uh, right now, racial tensions are heightened. Murder rates are on the rise, especially in big cities. We've killed six, 60 million babies since Roe vs. Wade. Uh, you know, it, it could be that we're on the brink of another world war. ISIS is running around beheading people. We have college students who have emotional breakdowns after seeing co Halloween costumes they don't like. So just look around the world and you'll see that education wasn't the answer. Science wasn't the answer. And I don't say all that to try to attempt you to be afraid. I just say look around the world and you'll see that uh, we need a different solution. We're not doing very good. Right? We may have minimized uh, some of the unpleasantness of living in a fallen world, but we haven't fixed the fundamental problem. Uh, and there's only one answer to that. Uh, secondly, we see the social gospel. So the first one is the good news of human progress, and that's just man in his rebellion, his basic attempt to uh, fix the problems of the world apart from God. But then we also see the social gospel. And the social gospel is the good news that Jesus has come into the world to fix all societal evils this side of heaven. Now, in some ways, this is kind of similar to the gospel of human problem uh, in that, uh, or the gospel of human progress in that the emphasis is not placed on moral problems, but on societal problems. And so as you think about the social gospel, they're both trying to address primarily societal problems. Um, but the difference is the social gospel is a Christian enterprise, Right. Uh, but the gospel of human progress is more of a secular enterprise. Uh, and obviously, no one's going no to use those terms. So very few social gospel advocates will use the phrase social gospel. It's kind of a phrase we use to describe the kind of teaching that they have uh, for them. I don't know that many people would, identify, would say that's what I'm teaching. Uh, if they did, we'd probably be a little bit more suspicious of what they're saying. Uh, so no one's going <laughs> to use these uh, uh, words. But then uh, you know you're interacting with the social gospel person uh, if, if they're the sort of person who never uses the word sin, for instance. And so if they never talk about sin or righteousness or judgment or hell or uh, the importance of uh, being reconciled to God, you know, uh, and, and all they're talking about is going and digging wells and uh, fixing hunger and uh, adopting maybe even, then at a certain point you, you, you say, well, I like what you're saying, but what troubles me is not what you're saying, but what you're not saying. And so uh, it seems like the whole of your gospel is round up in these uh, good social actions, which we ought to encourage. But um, the basic point I'm trying to make is the social gospel is the good news that Jesus has come into the world to fix all societal ev evils this side of heaven. Uh, now, the good, well, it understands part of the problem, right? World hunger is a big problem, isn't it? Um, uh, we're, it would do some good for us to uh, expose ourselves to the reality of hunger in other parts of the world. It's the kind of thing that, it, you know, in our um, middle-class lives, we, we're not forced to interact with these sort of things on a regular basis. And so 
uh, it's easy to develop a, develop a view of the world that is isolated from the reality that most of the world experiences on a daily basis. Uh, so the good news is it understands part of the problem. Um, certainly there is a lot of evil in the world, and certainly Christians are called to do what we can to uh, be salt and light in the midst of, the fall, of, of this fallen world. Uh, the bad is that it's selective in its presentation of the problem. So it's only thinking in terms of physical problems and not spiritual or moral problems in that way. So in that way, it's reductionistic. Uh, it's also uh, guilty of, and I don't know how to describe this other than to say, an over-realized eschatology. And what I mean by that is uh, the... There are certain things that we, as we read the scripture, God promises us to expect here and now this side of heaven. And so Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, don't, uh, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword to set father against mother, uh, sister against brother. Man's enemies will be those of his own household. So we shouldn't expect that ease and safety and comfort. We shouldn't expect that... Um, as the gospel goes out to the nations that we're going to fix every single societal problem or evil, uh, we shouldn't expect that uh, sin and death and suffering, uh, the consequences of sin, death, suffering, sickness, will all be alleviated this side of heaven. And so one day God will return and he will set all things right. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, uh, but that's not now, and we shouldn't expect that that be the case. Now, that's not... Uh, to say that we shouldn't strive as much as we can to um, eliminate as uh, much of the consequences of sin as we possibly can. It's just to say that uh, when we're thinking about the good news itself, the good news is not primarily a message of uh, a message which is going to result in every uh, in heaven on earth. So that's the point I'm trying to say. Now, what's the danger of embracing this uh, personally? Well, the danger of embracing this uh, message personally is that in some ways it could, uh, it could be an excuse that you, do, that you use to not engage in the difficult task of personal evangelism. And so it could be that you come to think of uh, doing good and uh, alleviating suffering as a world as fundamentally uh, the same thing as being evangelistic. And that's just simply not the case. When we preach the gospel, uh, it's necessary to use words. When we're preaching the gospel, we're not just handing out a cup of water. We are preaching the message of uh, of salvation that God has offered to sinners centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the danger to embracing this personally is that uh, we we could be um, in that way unfaithful to the most basic commission that we've been given. Now, the prosperity gospel is kind of a variation of this, and I, I thought about listing that separately, but then uh, I thought, well, maybe I could mention both of these things in the same point and try to draw distinctions. But the prosperity gospel is a variation of the social gospel in that, as I've said, as you think about what the social gospel is, social gospel is the good news that Jesus has come into the world to fix all societal evils in this side of heaven. Well, uh, most people who are uh, gravitating towards the social gospel, they, they are doing so out of a right concern and compassion to help suffering people. And so the social gospel is focused outward in terms of helping others 
to uh, helping alleviate the suffering of others, whereas the prosperity gospel is more inward in that you're more focused on you realizing the blessings of living in a perfected earth this side of heaven. And so prosperity uh, proponents will tell you to just look at your wallet and tell your wallet it's a big fat wallet and it's full of money. And if you have enough faith and that uh, you're and combine that with speaking those words uh, to God, you're giving God permission to act and make your wallet a big fat wallet. And so the prosperity gospel is more directed towards the individual. So you embrace the prosperity gospel and you have expectations that all the suffering in this life will be removed for you if you have faith. Whereas with the social gospel, uh, you're, you're directing that concern to alleviate all suffering outward, primarily to the neglect of the, the spiritual realities that are at play. And so I think for, for many, probably, probably most people in this church, we're not going to um, be uh, taken in by the prosperity gospel. If I tell you to uh, tell your wallet it's a big fat wallet, uh, I, don't, I don't expect that anyone would go out of here and think that just speaking those words in existence would cause their wallet to actually contain more money. So I think we, um, you look at what Benny Hinn's doing out there and uh, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, and I think we look at those uh, sort of individuals and you say, well, that's a bit weird and crazy, and uh, maybe you'll use other words that uh, um, to describe what's going on. And so as I've said, I don't think that this is our stated theology, but I do think it's our practical theology many times. And so you know that you, you, it's your practical... What I mean by that is I know that we wouldn't communicate that, but then... Uh, it could be that we've embraced this view of the world internally in terms of our own experience, and and you know that we you know that you have when God brings suffering in, into your life, when God brings difficulty into your life, and, and and immediately you know some difficult thing happens to you, and you're saying, "Why God? How could you possibly do that?" Well, you wouldn't communicate a prosperity theology, but that question that you just asked it only makes sense in a prosperity paradigm that's what i'm trying to say and so when suffering and difficulty come into our life and we just don't know how to interact with it uh, and we think that somehow that god is unhappy with us because we're going through because difficult things are happening what you've done is you've accepted the basic premise of a prosperity gospel you've accepted the assumption that if you are faithful to god that uh, everything will be okay, and that you'll, your life will be easy and safe and comfortable. And when he takes those things away from you, then you're wondering, how could you? Why would you do this? I didn't deserve this. Uh, it wasn't right for you to to take this from me. And so when when we do that, I think we we embrace prosperity from the back door, so to speak. Now, third, uh, third uh False gospel that we'll emphasize is the gospel of universalism. And I'll try to be a little quicker on some of these. But with universalism, universalism is the belief that eventually love will win. Um, hell will be emptied. No one will actually go there. Uh, and so basically universalism is the idea that, yes, there is a fundamental sin problem in the world. But ultimately, God will wear, wear people down. And whether in this life or the next, uh, everyone will end up going to heaven. And so what is the good news? Well, the good news is that uh, God's like Santa Claus. He's, he'll wink at sin. Uh, it, you know, he, uh, ultimately, everyone will get into heaven. Uh, God wasn't serious about these warnings of hell, and so I, that certainly is a, that certainly is good news when you think about it, think about it. But is that what we're expected to think uh, as we read the scriptures? And 
The pictures of hell that we find in the scripture are horrible and awful, and they're the kind of things that I don't think we want to think about on a regular basis. But we really do need to ask ourselves, do we believe the scriptures? Uh, Do we believe that God will do what he says he's going to do? Uh, If he says of hell that it will be a place where the worm dies not uh, and the fire is not quenched, uh, if the smoke of torment of loss will go up forever and ever and ever, if God says that, why shouldn't we believe what he says? And if if we don't believe him at that point, how can we believe him at other points? That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, Finally, what we see is the gospel of human merit. Interacted with the gospel of human progress. And that's the most secular on the end of these false gospels. And then what you get down to is this social gospel, which is uh, more coming from the Christian end. Uh, And then you have a universalism, which the good news is no one's ultimately going to be punished for their sins. Everyone will uh, have their guilt pardoned. Uh, irrespectively of how they interact with Jesus. And then uh, you get further and more and more um, sort of Christian Christianized in these ways, and then you get to the gospel of hu- human merit. And so most false religions function as sort of variations of the gospel of human merit. And so if you're not looking for a solution outside of yourself to this fundamental problem, if you do believe that there is some sort of afterlife, uh, that we're going to be accountable to. If there are various destinations we're headed, uh, how, how are you going to write the scales? Well, the gospel of human merit involves an, a human attempt to write the scales. Now, the problem is obviously that sin cannot be undone. And just to give you an example of this, just consider uh, a, the example of a murderer. So what if you were to have a, a, a man who commits murder and then... Um, runs away from the city where he's at. He lives a new life in obscurity in some uh, random place. Let's say that he were to have murdered your family member. And now, uh, one day, after many, many years, justice not being done, you find him uh, in a new city, and he looks at you, and he says, Well, I'm really sorry that I uh, I murdered your wife. Uh, let's say that it was your wife at that point. I'm really sorry that I murdered your wife, but as you can see, I really sought to turn my life around. Uh, I mean, I was, I'll admit I was a horrible person before, but now, look, I, I got married and I have a family. I have some kids. And, you know, I'm, I've never been tempted to murder anyone else uh, uh, the whole time since then. I really realized how bad that was. I really tried to make up for it and try to be a positive influence to society. I, you know, I'm a, uh, I work with the Boys and Girls Club. I, uh, you know, I have a, a home for, um, I, I have a home that I've started for orphans that uh, we feed them on a regular basis. So as you can see, I've really tried to turn things around. Uh, what, what would your response be to that sort of person? Well, that's wonderful that you've sought to turn everything around, but none of the nothing that you just said uh, can do anything to bring my wife back, right? So, I mean, you can't, you can't fix that by trying to go around doing a bunch of good deeds. I'm thankful that no one else has to experience what I just experienced there, but you don't fix it by uh, trying to go and uh, add a bunch of righteous acts to that. Um, the fundamental message of, uh, that God gives us is, is, is one sin uh, and you die. So you don't, Fix that problem by trying to be a do-gooder. Uh, 
The gospel of human merit doesn't fix the fundamental problem of justice. Similarly, the good news of antinomianism, that's a, that's a big word that means against the law. And so for many, I think, uh, as these are getting more and more closer to the truth. Uh, but the good news of antinomianism is a message which uh, is kind of the opposite of the gospel of human merit. The gospel of human merit says I'm going to try to reform my life in order to earn acceptance before God or whoever or whatever there is after I die. Uh, well, the good news of antinomianism is to say, well, you can't do anything to make up for what you've done. So therefore... Uh, the good news is that uh, God freely offers salvation as a gift, independent of human merit. So uh, the grace of God should be turned into an excuse to live in perpetual rebellion against the Lord. And so as you think through all these different false gospels, as you can see, I think they're all emphasizing certain aspects of, uh, of the truth in a very selective way. But it's important that we spend some time thinking about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so as you think about the good news of what others have, uh, the, the good news which others have put forward, it's important we spend some time thinking about what the good news actually is as defined by Scripture. And so we see 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 8, uh, one of the most um, careful and concise summaries of the gospel and scripture that we'll find. Paul says to the Corinthians that he delivered to them as of first importance what he also received. And what is that? That's the message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared more, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he he appeared to Paul. Now, as you can see, the gospel is a message of good news, as we've said. It's a good message of good news that centers around the work of what Christ has done. And so, uh, what has Christ done? Well, Christ died to pay for our sins, didn't he? Paul says, I delivered to you as of First importance, what I also re- received, that Christ died for our sins. So the gospel is a message of good news, which is primarily given as an answer to the problem of guilt. As a result of Adam's sin, we've inherited a guilty status, a guilty orientation, uh, and also we've all participated in sinful acts. Uh, the fact that we are, fact is, we're uh, guilty both object, uh, object, um, objectively and in terms of our experience. There is none among us standing here today who hasn't sinned, and so the God has uh, instituted a penalty for the sin that we all experience in one way or another. We stand both objectively guilty and legally guilty, and we experience this guilt as shame. Even in using the word guilt, I imagine that immediately for many people here, when you talk about the word guilt, something will pop up in your mind that gives reality to that idea. You'll realize that, yes, objectively, I have violated God's law. I have violated God's standards. And I imagine even as you're talking about that, instances of that rebellion and and uh, uh Rejection of God are coming into your mind even as we speak. And fundamentally what Christ has done is he's died in order to fix this problem. 
Now, if you listen to many preachers, I'm sure that uh, they're going to tell you that uh, your basic problem is a lack of purpose or a lack of satisfaction or that God has come to give you perfect uh, purpose. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, if you just come to Jesus, you can, you can live the uh, purpose-driven life. Or if you just come to Jesus, uh, the, you know, you'll have this message of satisfaction. Uh, you, you will no longer be depressed. God will come and he'll heal all of your uh, emotional wounds that you have. Uh, and, and so the call is, are you struggling with purpose or meaning? Come to Christ. Are you dissatisfied? Uh, come to Christ. Everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart. And uh, God wants to fix those things. Uh, but... Uh, but as you think through the biblical gospel, sure, uh, coming to Christ involves uh, coming to realize that your purpose for life is actually to live for the glory of God. And uh, certainly, if you do come to Christ, uh, primarily you will experience uh, the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you. And He will be producing inside of you the fruit of the Spirit. And some of the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. Uh, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, patience, self-control. So certainly that you should experience joy as a result of being a Christian. Uh, but that's not fundamentally the problem that, the God, uh, that Christ died for. Christ didn't fundamentally die to give you purpose and meaning. Many people apart from Christ have purpose and meaning. The problem is it's the wrong purpose. So many people have satisfaction uh, apart from Christ. They have satisfaction in the things of the world. Uh, and that's why the scriptures tell us, do not love the world or the things in the world. Right? So many people have satisfaction and purpose apart from Christ. Uh, the gospel isn't unique in that respect. What's unique is that the gospel has come to fix our, our problem of guilt. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. He, uh, and, and the means of him doing that is by giving us a free gift which couldn't be earned or couldn't be paid back. So Christ died fundamentally to fix the, the sin problem. Uh, secondly, Christ died in accordance with Scripture. So to say that Christ died according to the scriptures, among other things, emphasizes the predetermined nature of Christ's death. In this respect, according to 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was the Lamb uh, which was slain before the foundation of the world. Before uh, the foundation of the world, God determined to create a world and let it fall and to provide a means of salvation uh, to fix the problem of the fall. So this all happened before the fall, or before God even decided to create the world. So you have a, a as you read the scriptures, the scriptures, what they do is they give, they uh, reveal to us this unfolding plan that God had before the foundation of the world. And so as you see, uh, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this, uh, the human problem gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So even the heroes of the Old Testament are sinners, uh, even David uh, commits sin with Bathsheba and uh, the sin of adultery and murders Uriah. Uh, as you read through the dark chapters of the Judges, you'll see that there's no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eye. And maybe the king would be the problem. Well, David wasn't the answer to the sin problem, was he? Things get uh, get better under David, and the high point maybe happens at Solomon. But uh, with Solomon, foreign women led his heart away from uh, serving the living God. And after that, you see things get worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, as you read through the book of Kings, you'll see that this ca uh, king did not walk as David walked, uh, but lived, uh, uh, but worshipped to the Baals or... Um, 
you know, the, the story of the book of Kings is uh, sin and rebellion. Uh, the answer to the human problem is not going to be found in, uh, in a righteous king who uh, reigns. It's not going to be found in prophet. Uh, it's not going to be found in one of the human prophets or judges. It's going to be found in a solution outside of, uh, of all of these human means. So Christ died for us in accordance to Scripture. So we see that God put forward this plan for salvation for the world. In Jesus Christ. And, and that means that the cross wasn't plan B, was it? God didn't just create a world and then say, Hey, well, um, they're rejecting my ways. I'm going to have to fix the problem. Huh, how am I going to do that? I think I'll send my son into the world. And that would be a good way of, of answering the problem. Uh, in this respect, we often, I think, hear God being described as uh, the master chess player who... Uh, is always responding in the perfect way to uh, our sinfulness, but that's not a good picture of God. God prepared it before the foundation of the world to uh, hit to uh, a creation that would fall, and then he would send his son in there to provide an answer for us. Uh, lastly, we see that Christ was buried and raised to life. So what is the gospel? It's the message of good news that Christ has fixed the sin problem. He did so in accordance with the scriptures as it was predicted. Uh, but then... Uh, how did he do so? He did so by uh, dying on a cross for us and being buried and raised to life. So the good news is the good news of what Jesus has done in history. Now, why is it important to emphasize it and we're em- as we're emphasizing the gospel that Christ was buried and that he was raised to life? Well, um, Often, I think maybe we think the res- think of the resurrection as an afterthought, or uh, his appearances to the apostles as an afterthought. Uh, the main thing was that he died, uh, and so we had a sin problem that we couldn't fix, and so Christ was a sacrificial lamb which paid for our sins. But what, how does the resurrection and his appearances tie into all that? Well, uh, if you just go to First Corinthians fifteen, uh, you can look at that at another point in time. One of the things that you realize, though, is that. Without the resurrection from the dead, uh, our hope for Christ, hope of Christ is in vain, and we are still in our sins. So, if we don't know that Christ that God raised Christ from the dead, how can we have confidence that He'll raise us from the dead? And so, this is true both spiritually and physically. One day, Christ will, uh, because God raised Christ from the dead, He will literally raise us from the dead, so that we can be with Christ, so that we don't have hope in this life only, but we have hope. Yeah, one day we, when, when he appears, we will see him. So this has implications for us physically in terms of a literal bodily resurrection, but it also has uh, implications for us spiritually. If Jesus raised Christ from the dead, he can raise me from the dead. And that's what Ephesians 2 says. We were dead in our trespasses of sin. Uh, in which we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses of sin. By grace we've been saved. And he raised us from our spiritual death. And so you see that this truth that Christ was buried and raised to life is an objective historical reality that, uh, that affects us both this life and the next. This life, we know that if Christ died to pay for our sins, we don't have to be the sort of people that we once were. In rejection to the gospel of antinomianism, when Christ saves a person, he raises them from the dead. He changes them. He takes out their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh so that they no longer have to be the people that they once were. 
So how do we respond to this message of what Christ has done? How do we respond to the message of Christ coming to pay for sins and being buried and raised to life in order that we might uh, be transformed? How do we respond to that? It's one thing to know uh, this message of what Jesus did, but how do we interact with it? Well, Mark 1, 14 through 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what, what, was, what must we do in response to our situation? Well, first we need to embrace our situation. When we look around the world, we see uh, that we live in a world that's dominated and affected and corrupted by sin. There's no human answer to that problem. When you look around the world, you see that we live in a fallen world. We're broken uh, people who uh, don't uh, love God as we should. We don't love others as we should. We look around the world. There's no human solution to this problem. It's a desperate problem. And it's not just outside of us. It's in our own hearts, in our own lives. So it's not just that the problem is outside of us and other people and education and science is going to fix the answer. No, the problem is that I'm a sinner, objectively. And I can't do anything to fix that fundamental problem. I cannot um, somehow of my own will learn to desire God. I can't somehow of my own will uh, cease being selfish. When I wake up, I think about me. When I wake up, I seek to serve me. I can't do anything about that myself. And God says that there is one day coming a punishment for this uh, reality of this sinfulness in my own heart. I can't do anything to change it. Um, I'm guilty objectively. And apart from Christ, I'm going to spend eternity burning forever in hell. That's what the scriptures say. So you have to, how do you respond to the good news? Well, embrace your situation and then you cry out for mercy. It says, repent and believe the gospel. So you, you acknowledge, first of all, that you're a sinner who's in need of this salvation, that you can't do anything on your own to earn this salvation, uh, but God must show you mercy. Your only hope for eternal life is that the creator of the universe uh, come and live inside of you and grant you mercy and give you a righteousness that's not your own, as Pastor Kevin said last week, that, uh, that he declares you innocent, that... Uh, he looks upon you and he gives you an alien righteousness, a righteousness which is outside of yourself. Uh, and so in doing so, you trust that Jesus can do for you what you cannot do on your own. That's what it means to believe the gospel. You're trusting in the good news that uh, Jesus Christ has come and provided a salvation for you. And so in repenting of your sins, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that you have a problem uh, and that you need, and by God's grace, you want to turn from your sins and turn towards uh, faith and trust in Jesus to do for you what you cannot do. With that, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone here today who is trusting in any of these false... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.